Hi, and welcome to Be More Super, the podcast. I'm Brian, your host, and wow, this week I have got an amazing, amazing episode uh, for you to listen to. This lady I've tried to get on the show for the last eight months since I started the show, and I've got her. And I was absolutely blown away. And yes, I was nervous. You can probably tell. But you know what? This lady is a member of royalty in Hollywood. She has got a star on the Walk of Fame. She has won many Emmys, Golden Globes. Uh, she's been in so many films. It's just, It was just amazing to interview her. It's, of course, the wonderful Jane Seymour. So sit back, relax and enjoy this episode and as always, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful people at Prop Store. So if you're after a genuine used prop or, or screen-used costume piece, this company is for you. Check them out on www.propstore.com as they've got a wonderful auction coming up in December. So check that website out and check our interview out with Stephen Lane, the man at Prop Store that's going to be coming up very, very soon. And as always, we've got our YouTube channel. So if you've not seen our YouTube channel yet, go on YouTube, put in Be More Super the podcast, please subscribe and share and like the videos because all our podcasts now are videos so you can watch them instead of listening to them but please share like and subscribe so sit back relax and enjoy our interview with the wonderful the magnificent the stunning jane c welcome to be more super the podcast in action-packed podcast where we'll discuss all things entertainment you're the answer to are we alone in the universe conventions prop collecting cosplay interviews reviews and so much more the show starts with host brian garner right now On this week's episode of Be More Super, the podcast, it's got to be probably the best guest I've had on the show to date. Ever since I started the podcast, I wanted to get this star on. Um, she has been in, uh, you know, Live, Live and Let Die. Uh, she's been a Bond girl, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, and also in Somewhere, uh, Somewhere in Time, which is one of my favorite movies. It's, of course, Jane Seymour. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you. And how is life treating you at the moment in these unprecedented times? Well, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate uh, for many, many reasons. Um, one, of course, being healthy. Number yeah. two, living by the ocean and not having a fire that close to me today. Um, I'm surrounded by my family and my grandchildren who are homeschooling downstairs. So if you hear any noises, that's what's happening. That's fine. Um, I, you know, I, my home, I'm able to paint, create, um, do everything that I want to do, walk on a beach. And I have been filming, actually. I was in Australia for five weeks uh, making a movie, starring in a movie called Ruby's Choice. And I'm about to go to Spain, COVID pending, um, to continue another role that I'm doing. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm considering everything. I, I have actually found the glass to be half full. Yeah, yeah, that's the way we've got to look at it. I suppose, uh, you yeah. know, the countries have been through harder times. It is hard times, especially for the kids. Uh, but we've just got to follow guidance by the government, which isn't always happening, um, especially in the UK at the moment. Um, so when you were young, did you ever think that one day you were going to be part of Hollywood royalty? 
no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, you know, I was born in Merton Park. Well, I was born actually in Hillingdon, Middlesex. Lived in a, you know, a, um, a semi-detached in Merton Park, and um, just had a very regular life. Except I was obsessed with doing ballet, which my parents could barely afford to let me do. But I kept winning prizes and things. And then I got a scholarship to go to school and, and become a ballet dancer. So, um, but even then, you know, I got injured. I wasn't going to be a dancer anymore. And my parents were dead against me, um, you know, being an actress or anything. So they told me I had to go to teacher's training college. Uh, and that was our first argument. I said, no, I'm either performing or I'm not doing this anymore. So, um, <laughs> That was it. And, and my father's joke was, well, if your ship comes in, you know, um, you can buy me a Rolls Royce. It was a joke, right? Big joke. And one day my ship came in, literally, as you know, the English expression. And it was the most wonderful moment. It was Christmas. And I had this, this driver roll up in an old Rolls Royce. Obviously, it had been a wedding Rolls Royce. Drive my parents up to where we lived in, in the country and handed to them, them the keys and said, your oh, daughter has instructed me to tell you that the ship, the ship came in. <laughs> oh, that's marvellous. That is so nice. Um, Isn't that I, funny? <laughs> yeah. Oh, bless them. I mean, did you always want to be an actress? I mean, obviously you did ballet and you wanted to do dance and you danced yeah. in Covent Garden as well. Um, but did you also want to be an actress, you know, while you was dancing? Yes, I mean, I went to a wonderful school, the Arts Educational Trust, as it was called then. I think it's called Arts Educational Schools now. Um, and because I wasn't the right shape and size and limber enough to be a classical ballerina um, and the Royal Ballet turned me down, that was where you would go if you were not going to be a classical ballerina. But, yeah. You know, I kept, I kept trying to do it, uh, but they did compulsorily give you acting lessons, thank goodness, and a few other uh, classes, um, uh, improv and um, mime and um, history, ballet and theatre and design and uh, tap and modern and, you know, all kinds of other things. And I was actually, I kept winning prizes for acting, um, which... I've just been looking at all my old memorabilia and whenever I danced, they would say, you know, a, a, a nice dancer, you know, but with dancers with a lot of emotion, you know, we look forward to her becoming an actress. So, you know, I, I, um, I realized that that was what I should be doing quite early on. Yeah. I mean, do you dance still now? Do you uh, take a bit of time to uh, do a few uh, plies? <laughs> I do actually. I, I always take time to do a few plies, and then if I put my leg up on, you know, you can see that that railing back there. That's my bar. That yeah. actually is what I use for a bar, um, and you know, it's it hurts. Oh, <laughs> you know, if, if I haven't done it for a while, if I try and point my toes, they spasm, yeah. which is not good. Um, but I just, nothing can stop me from just constantly wanting to move and dance. And so I tend to dance with my grandchildren and just for fun on, on the grass outside or on the beach. So there's lots of photographs on my Instagram of me. We call them the twirling, but um, no, no serious dance classes. I tried it. <laughs> I tried it a while ago with a friend of mine who said, oh, actually it's uh, Kim Campbell, Glenn Campbell's wife who goes to this class. And I went there and I said, you must be kidding. I mean, just pointing my toe now kills me. So <laughs> no, I, I stick to um, uh, Pilates and gyrotonics and very safe um, stretching and strengthening of my body. Um, but if I am asked to go out on the dance floor and dance, um, 
anything, a waltz or any kind of pair dancing, yes, I still do that. In fact, I have a movie coming up in which I am doing a very, a very interesting salsa, which I end up on, you know, being twirled around on, on this guy's, in his arms. I mean, everyone thought I was going to be dropped and die, but no, I, that, I do dance, but not, not, not officially. And that is, of course, Friendsgiving that's going to be out yeah. in, in October. The trailer yes. looks absolutely amazing. It really well, does. In, in, it's really hilariously funny. And I play this um, very, very funny uh, Swedish woman who is definite cougar. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm pretty much unrecognizable. I have a thick, full, bouncy, blonde hair. Um, I have a very thick Swedish accent. And... Uh, I am very cougary and I am not acting my age at all. And in the trailer, you will see that bit where they're twirling. This guy has me in the air um, spinning around with me. And I think the entire crew and, um, and certainly the director and producers were like, oh, my God, she's going to die. But no, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so no stunt double needed. Um, no, no stunt doubles. None. That I haven't good seen to stunt hear. double for a long time. No. <laughs> So when you was uh, growing up and you were training as a, you know, to be an actor, who influenced you the most during those years? Well, I would say um, uh, Lord Richard Attenborough. I would absolutely say he was my mentor. Um, I met his son, who I eventually married. I met him when I was 15 years old, 15 or 16, um, just socially. When I was 17, I had one line in um, Richard Attenborough's first movie, Oh, What a Lovely War. I was a chorus girl who sang and with a scene with Maggie Smith. And uh, Maggie Smith says, is there a man digging your garden when he should be digging trenches? And I run up and squeak, he should be digging trenches. So that was the day that I was A, discovered by the top agent in England, uh, B, discovered by Richard Attenborough and his son, who I eventually married and became a member of their family. Um, still very close friends. And, and Dickie really was my mentor. So um, I remember him trying to help me with my, I tried to get into RADA, Lambda, you know, like everyone. And uh, um, he was listening and trying to give me some direction. And uh, they turned me down and said, why didn't you go away and, um, you know, sweep the stages of Scotland for a, a year or so, then come back and try again. And so I, I said, okay. Uh, and I didn't sweep any stages because um, the agent had spotted me in this, you know, in the chorus line there of doing this, this movie and um, signed me up. And the next thing I knew I was making movies and um, acting from the time I was 17. So I, I uh, he was, you know, Dickie was my mentor. And I think what I learned the most was from watching him direct uh, Anne Bancroft, mm. the late Anne Bancroft. And I remember him showing her work to me and just saying, watch, watch Anne, you know, that's what you want to aspire to. Do you see her stillness? Do you see, you know, this incredible depth? Do you see, uh, you know, just watch her. And, um, and, and also while I was around Dickie, you know, I, I would meet people like uh, Laurence Olivier who would be come to the house and, you know, we'd all have dinner and the next day we'd go out to Shepparton and he'd be doing some Dickens thing. And, and all the stories that, that Larry would tell that night ended up being part of the character he played the following day. And I went, wow, that's how it mm. works. So I got, I would say my best education was from my mentors and just from really watching people when I was working. I, I worked 
early on with Sir John Gielgud, with, um, with, you know, a lot of really great, great people. Um, Ralph Richardson, um, you know, lots of amazing people. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I, and then after I did this Bond film, I went back in the theater and I did an enormous amount of theater. I did every, all the classics they'd let me do. Macbeth, you know, Lady Macbeth, uh, um, Ophelia, Middleton and Rowley, you know, um, Ibsen, you name it, I did it. You know, even Agatha Christie and, uh, and Noel Coward. So I, I really uh, trained myself in rep. Yeah. I mean, I read a story, uh, apparently a casting director, Rene uh, Valente, Valente, told yeah. you to lose your English accent and acquire an American one. I yes. Mean, did, one, did you do that? Uh, and, and two, what did you say back? Um, you know what? She was the smartest woman I ever met. It was the best piece of advice uh, I ever received. Um, and, um, you know, I could do all the English colloquial accents. I'd never tried American. So um, I thought, well, you know, if I can do West Country and, you know, North and Wales and you know, Ireland and Scotland, why, why not American? <laughs> so, um, so I did and I came back and uh, she was right because what happened in England at that time was... And I think even still today, nobody wanted anyone that spoke English the way I speak it naturally, which is what I suppose they call BBC English um, or classic English. They wanted colloquial. And um, because I, even though I could do it, they never looked at me and said, oh, she looks like the girl next door, you know, from Manchester or Birmingham or wherever. I just, I didn't. I didn't. And I, even if I did the accent. So when I went to America, they said that they were not afraid of me looking what the English said was too exotic. That, that I looked fine on camera. They liked that. But there weren't many people who looked good on camera that could act and, you know, were, could, you know, had that kind of range. So um, I, um, I just started playing Americans and uh, everyone thought I was American because I'd come into the audition or I'd come on set and I'd never utter a single English word ever, never. And so they all thought I was American. And then I played, you know, Bostonian and I played, you know, um, um, Illinois and I played uh, New York. And so it wasn't just classic American. I, I did, you know, every accent like I used to do in England. And um, nobody knew I was, uh, I was English unless they really looked me up. They, they were foolish enough to actually believe I was American. And I, I always remember one day being invited to ABC, I think it was, um, I'd done a lot of stuff for them, including a um, very highly rated show called the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders, which I hated, um, but it was the highest rated show in the history of television. I played an American journalist from you know, Time or Music or something who infiltrated the cheerleaders. Terrible TNA thing, don't bother watching, but <laughs> very successful. And yeah. after that, I sat down for lunch at, at ABC and they said, well, with the heads of ABC, they said, would you like some to drink? And I said, yes, I'd love a glass of white wine, please. And they said, what's with that phony English accent, that glass of white wine, please thing? And I, I oh, <laughs> I said, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like a glass of white wine. Yeah, you know, you, you almost sounded like you were English there. And I said, well, actually I am. And they no, you're not. No, you're not. We've seen all these hundreds of hours of all your footage. You're an American. You're an American. I so I said, yes, I can be an American. I'm very comfortable being an American. I will not utter another English sound in your presence. <laughs> but that's what happened. So, yeah. yeah. And now they're screaming out for the English to come over because Hollywood now is absolutely, you know, full of English so actors. Great. Yeah. I, 
Yes, I was one of the first, apparently. And um, interestingly enough, the first role I managed to get a, a work permit with was playing an Israeli tank commander. Right. That was interesting on a, a Dennis Weaver series called McLeod. And the bad news was that Dennis did not want me in the show because unbeknownst to me, he was president of Screen Actors Guild and his entire campaign was to stop the Brits from coming to Hollywood. And wow. there he was with a Brit getting her first work. So he did everything to throw me, even admitted to it. You know, he would, we'd come in to, to shoot and we'd rehearse and he'd rewrite the entire thing. But what he didn't realize was I'd done two weekly rep with, with the classics. So, you know, to show me another three pages that were just rewritten and have two minutes to five minutes to look at them was not actually going to throw me, but yeah. he tried. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. And looking, anyway, back, and looking back to how life was back then when you was making it in Hollywood to now, how easy is it for someone to make it into Hollywood now opposed to back when you did? Um, you know, I think if you're an established uh, actor or actress in anywhere in the world or in England and you come to Hollywood and they specifically want you to be in their movie, um, you know, they, they just uh, ask for a visa, a special mm -hmm. visa, special permission and vice versa. Um, I, at the time when I did it, it was very hard um, and nobody wanted to hear an English accent at that time in, in America. They, the understanding by the networks was that an English accent would be too hard for people to comprehend. So you had to speak in their language. Yeah. Um, and that's why I did all the American. Nowadays, actually, funnily enough, I am asked all the time to play English. Uh, I played English in the Kaminsky method. I was going to play it American. Nope, we want English. Um, the one I just did in Australia, Ruby's Choice, they decided they wanted me to be English. And, in fact, I'm coming to um, Ireland to shoot an English series next year. It hasn't been announced yet. And I will, of course, be playing English again. So I, I'm playing a lot more English uh, recently. Um, and I think, uh, you know, people actually like hearing my real accent. You, you've got a lovely accent and you should be proud of it. And people should be hearing more of it. So, so <laughs> fingers crossed you get more roles where it's English speaking. So um, I've got to say, I've got a guest coming onto the show um, next week. He's currently in his show called Star Trek Discovery on CBS. He plays Commander Saru. Uh, his name is Doug Jones. And he's asked me to say to you, well, he's, he's asked for me to tell you that he absolutely loves you. And uh, he loves somewhere in time. Um, and he wanted me to just tell you. So that is my job done. So, so I'll let Doug oh. know that I told you. Um, so let's talk somewhere in time. Um, so the film is based on the novel written by Richard Matheson and stars yourself, the wonderful Christopher Reeve and Christopher Plummer. And today, as this will be going out on the 3rd of October, we'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary. Does it feel 40 years ago for you? It's pretty much unbelievable. 40 years. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know where the last 40 years has gone. I mean, it's gone zoom, like that. Um, yeah. But during that time, I've, I've managed to give birth to four children and, um, <laughs> you know, six grandchildren and at least two marriages and divorces. Um, so, yes, I did pack that time. Uh, my memories of summer time, though, are magic. You know, people say, what's the most enjoyable 
experience you ever had on a movie, I would say somewhere in time. You know, yeah. everything was, there were no cars on the island. You know, it was Chris and I, you know, we, we fell madly in love. I think, you know, that's now common knowledge. We, we kept it secret for many, many years. Um, and there's a magic to that movie that was very real. And there was, you know, an amazing behind the scenes story that is even more moving, which we won't get into now, but um, that, that movie has stayed with me forever. And, uh, and I miss Chris enormously. Um, mm. And um, it, it was just, it was just magic. You know, when I, when I go back there to Mackinac, um, I, I love going back there and seeing all the fans all dressed up. And I remember Chris telling me, uh, before the accident, our, our plan was just the two of us. We were going to go back there and, and, and sort of revisit it, just the two of us. We didn't imagine anyone else would show up. He thought the film was a, was a terrible flop, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, he got terrible reviews, terrible reviews. And uh, he thought, you know, his career was over, but he personally loved the movie. And then, of course, it became this huge success that's never dwindled. I mean, people from all over the world love that movie, uh, including people say to me, it's a chick flick. And it isn't. It's a man's it's movie. Not. Yeah. No, far from it. Actually, I think more men love it. In fact, General Colin Powell, who's like one of the biggest, most important admirals in or, or a military man in, in the United States of America, amazing guy. I met him once and he just literally flipped and went, oh my God, somewhere in time. Oh my God, my favorite movie. I've seen it a million <laughs> times. I keep watching it. Every time I see it, him, he can be in the presence of presidents and he drops everything and comes in for a hug. So I, all I can say is somewhere in time um, has impacted all ages, all generations. It's a completely timeless movie. There's no reason to remake it because it takes place somewhere in time and transcends time. And uh, I, I think it would be hard to get the magic of that moment and the simplicity of mm. that movie. It was only made for $2 million. No one was, you know, trying to make a huge movie. We, 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 were, we were telling this beautiful story, which by the way, the, the book was called Bid Time Return, um, which if you said it quickly in American, sounds like Bedtime Return. <laughs> like, yeah, let's, yes. let's get back from bed, which was, that's why it was changed to somewhere in time. Just, you know, a small thing. Uh, I also have another funny anecdote because we all got so nervous about the first time that Chris and I would meet and when we meet by the tree and my line is, is it you? Is it? And I was so excited. And when the time came, I went, is it you? Is it? And it came up, is a Jew? Like, which I had to actually re-record because that was the original sound says, is a Jew, is it? Oh. Like, no, no, not a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and what was your first impressions of Elise McKenna when you actually read the script? Oh, I fell madly in love with it. I, I just, I read this and I just said, I, I want to do this movie more than anything in my life ever. And, um, and when I went and I met with... Um, Christopher in the sort of the, they had, a, I think a, a final four or six, I don't know how many, how many women it was they saw on the final day. And um, I, I wanted it so much that I didn't even dare go home. I, I got in my car, I drove someone who was 
a, a friend of a friend who was you know turning 40 and having a meltdown i drove her out to the beach spent the day on the beach came back to all these answering machine you know messages of where are you where are you you've got the role <laughs> so I, I wanted it so much that i just i ran away and then of course i was just beyond thrilled and 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 like i said you know chris and i just hit it off immediately there was just some magic in the casting and um and uh, it was just beautifully directed. And, I, you know, my, my best friends ever were from making that movie. The, one of the associate producers, Stephen Bickle, who's now passed, he became my closest friend, literally like a member of our family um, ever since then. So uh, Summer in Time is very meaningful to me. And I've been back to these reunions. Oh, my goodness. How amazing are they? And... Of course, Chris and I never managed to go together. So one time I actually got Chris on my phone when in the auditorium, when all the, the, the insight members, all the people that came were there. And I got Chris to talk to them and answer their questions whilst I think he was watching his son play ice hockey. Yeah. Uh, so it was baggies. Oh. Um, but yeah, Chris and I used to laugh about it literally to the day he died. We talked about summer in time and, yeah. I mean, the score on that movie as well is absolutely breathtaking. And apparently I heard from from someone that that is partly down to you. That 100%. John Barry actually yeah. scored it. Absolutely. John Barry was a very close friend of mine. Um, I met him before I, you know, around the time I did uh, Live and Let Die. But I've definitely known him forever. And, and um, my agent... Uh, told me that if I went out for lunch or ever dated John Barry, he'd drop me immediately because he'd had a client <laughs> that uh, Jane Birkin, who had immediately got pregnant and quit acting or something with John Barry. So John Barry was quite the lad. Um, by the time I really got to know John uh, better later in life, um, he was married to uh, a girl that I'd met um, as a little girl, a young girl at Cubby Broccoli's house, a great friend of uh, Barbara Broccoli's called uh, Laurie, who he married when she was almost a teenager. And Laurie was not keen on, on John um, hanging out with any old girlfriend. So I was the only one that John knew from previous years was allowed in the house. So um, we used to laugh about that. And I was doing this beautiful movie and I said, oh, Laurie, John needs to do this movie, but they can't even afford the phone call, let alone <laughs> him or the orchestra or anything. I made a joke and she said, show it to me, show it to me, I did. And she went to John and said, John, you've got to make this movie. And I, they can't afford you. But maybe you can just own the rights to it and you know, do a back end on it and do nothing up front. And that's what they did. And, oh, my goodness, you, you can't imagine. Universal and everyone said they couldn't believe the deal they got. It was unbelievable. And John did this extraordinary music. Plus, he had the wisdom to use Rachmaninoff's um, theme from, from Paganini. And uh, it, it ended up, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I believe they made... Certainly at one time when they really needed money, they made more money from the, the, uh, the rights to Somewhere in Time than anything else. Um, wow. So, wow. you know, I always tell people when you do something for free because you just believe in it and you want to, yeah. that the back end can come to um, enhance your life experience, which is, I think, what happened there. That is wonderful. And the dress work in that movie you know the costumes and the quality oh, of the cost, cost costumes are absolutely stunning did you keep anything from the production no they wouldn't let me have anything and there's a good story to that one too jean-pierre doliac uh, did the costumes 
And um, I think this was one of the first things he ever did. I then worked with him afterwards, I think, in Battlestar Galactica, but he did that costumes. He was given a budget. He decided to throw the budget away and spent four times as much. And then <laughs> when he'd done it, everyone said, wow, this is amazing. And then they saw the bill. They said, you're fired. It was too late to fire him because he'd already done this. And he was really smart. And I think he got nominated for the costumes. But no, sadly, I don't have any of the costumes. I had the white one, the one that I do the speech, remade exactly. Hand beaded the whole work. So I now own an absolute copy of that. Uh, but I do have one thing from the movie, and that is the waistcoat that had the penny. Wow. I that. And that was a gift from Chris gave that to me. And actually, I found a, a watch that wasn't a prop watch, a real gold watch from the era, very close to the one we used in the movie. And I inscribed a personal message to him, a secret message inside of it, and gave him that. Um, sadly, he has, he, before he died, he couldn't tell me where he'd hidden it. Um, yeah. So somebody somewhere will find this watch and it'll be like the movie all over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah come back to me. Um, come back to me, except that we didn't, I didn't sign it, Jane and Chris, because we were so secretive. I think I called it Bigfoot and Littlefoot or Minifoot. That was our nicknames for each other, Bigfoot and Minifoot. Oh, I've got so to say, if you one, find a watch with that inside, you know. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be the first one to let you know. Uh, one of my favourite uh, scenes in the movie is when you're in the theatre and you go off script. I've yes. got to say, every time I see that 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 scene, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, and it's it's just stunning. It really is. It really, you know, captures you just in that mo mo moment. Question is, what is your what was your favourite scene to film? Um, I probably think that one, and this, again, very interesting because when I did it first, um, they hadn't finished all the close-ups. They'd done most of the longer shots. And, um, and then Chris was unavailable for some reason when they had to come in and do all the close-up, everything that you see. So Richard Matheson sat in for Chris. Really? So I actually acted and played that scene to the writer of the original <laughs> book and not Chris Reeve at all. Wow. Isn't wow. that why? You know what? I didn't know that. How funny. I know. Nobody knows that. Wow. Yeah, I, I, and apparently this, the story goes from his family that um, Richard was so moved by it and so disconcerted and uncomfortable that after it was finished, he left to go home to his wife. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so you did a fantastic job there. But Apparently I, I convinced him off camera, yes. But, that, you know, that, that was pretty wild. Yeah, and, and, and obviously the, 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 the movie marked your relationship with Christopher Reeve. And, you know, when he passed in 2004, I think it affected a lot of people because he was probably one of the most inspirational men that I've I've have ever known i've read both of his books uh superman the movie for me was absolutely amazing and i've got to say when i first saw uh some somewhere in time i was quite confused I, I i was only still a child and i thought it was clark kent you know i was like wait a second this is superman <laughs> but, yeah. um but yeah i mean you know obviously after the film you're filming you 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 remain quite close you become a godfather to one of your children yes um any fond mem memories that, that that come out for you for after the film the filming of chris 
Oh, I could write a whole book on it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, before the accident, I remember um, we were both on Broadway at the same time. I was doing Amadeus and he was doing, I can't remember what, something in a wheelchair, I think, believe it or not. Yes, he was in a wheelchair. Um, and that was before his accident. And uh, we used to hang out in New York and see one another. And then the, the deal was that one day, you know, he would, Mar get married again or whatever or I would or w whatever and um, we, you know, we, we really wanted to be together but that time we couldn't be and I was devastated and um, he um, met and fell madly in love with Dana so randomly one day we were somewhere some, something where we all had, were in a green room and then I had, we had to go on, on stage and present an award I can't even remember what it was and I hadn't seen him in years and he'd been with Dana and I'd heard about date, this wonderful woman, Dana. And we bumped into each other, literally physically. And he said, oh, Jane, I've always wanted you to meet Dana. And so Dana and I met, it was great. Then they, they summoned Chris off, Dana went off in another direction. I thought, wow, I've just met Dana. And then all of a sudden she turned around and came back to me and she said, I've always wanted to meet you. And I, and I said, you know, me too. And she said, no, you don't understand. You know, Chris told me you were the only major lover of his life apart from me and I always wanted to meet you because he talks about you a lot so I just thought what kind of woman says that that's pretty amazing and I didn't know that he would have told her and anyway long story short we all three became really really close friends and then after the accident um, I would go and visit them there they would come here and my house is completely ramped because of Chris, you know, he could go into any part of my home, uh, even right down to look at the ocean by himself. And he loved that. And, uh, and he wanted to be godfather to one of my twins. And so that was amazing. And, and both boys got to meet him and, and sit on his lap. I mean, one of them was tried to take his trachea out. That was oh dear. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then Chris and I literally until just before he died, we would, have like two to three hour conversations on the phone, just talking about life. Mm. And, um, you know, that friendship was, I still feel, I still feel that, you know, he's with me somehow in, in my life, but just by talking about him, but uh, he was, you're right, the most amazing man. He, he was my inspiration very much so for, um, what I did with Open Hearts and the Open Hearts Foundation. In fact, we honored him we honored, um, with the work that he did. You know, the whole concept of, of having to deal with the challenge in life that is, appears to be, ins, you know, insurmountable and taking that challenge in, and using it as an opportunity to help others. I think Christopher Reeve is the, is the ultimate open heart. That's what yeah. I call being open hearted. And, you know, my mother did that after surviving World War II and countless people I know have done extraordinary things when they've gone through a challenge that they go, why me? How can I even live with this? And then realize that having managed to process it, they realize there are people even worse off than them and they find a way to uniquely help them. And I think that's really, you know, the legacy of, of Christopher Reeve is that. That's what he did. And um, as, as brilliant an actor as he was, I think he will always be remembered for the difference he made in, in, in you know, challenging countries and, and leaders and, and, and scientists to find um, a way to use um, stem cell regeneration yeah. and, um, you know, finding a way to 
to help people, you know, who had spinal injuries because at the time he had that injury, uh, you know, there was no science on it. They just said, hey, you're done. You're in, you're mm. in a chair. You're on a vent. That's it. But, but um, his legacy is definitely still living on with his kids. Um, oh, they're all amazing. They you know, are amazing. I wrote yes. to Will a while back. Uh, because his dad is is so much, you know, an inspiration to me. And Will wrote back to me and um, I asked him, you know, what sort of a father was he? And, and, you know, what sort of things did he teach you? And one of the things that he said his dad and his mom taught him was give more than you take, which I think is in a nutshell, you know, Chris Reeve. I think that's amazing you know, give more than you take. And I think that's what the world needs to do. And, you know, Open Hearts Foundation is all about that. It's about being selfless and right. and giving more out. It does, it, it's not necessarily about money. It's about, you know, any, any, anything that you, you, you can do, you know, for the fellow right. man, which I think is fantastic. Well, thank you. And, and I, you know, my daughter started something now. If you go to the Open Hearts Foundation website, you'll see it called Young Hearts. And it, you know, so the next generation um, is is following up with the idea of volunteering. So what we're doing is we're putting together an app so people who want to volunteer can go to vetted organizations that want their specific skill set. That's what we're working on as well. So really, um, I have discovered through my mom, but also people like Kristen, and this is what we would talk about, is that the more you give, the more you receive. So when you give of yourself and you, you know, take the time out to, to actually be of service to help someone, um, it, it makes you feel like you have a purpose. And, you know, right now people, a lot of people don't have jobs. A lot of people don't have purpose. They're not quite sure what, what the future is going to hold. And um, I don't think there's ever been a better time for talking about the philosophy of opening your heart and opening your mind because, um, the world has become a very different place and we're all trying to figure out uh, where do we belong, what do we do and how can we make a difference. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about what we're doing right now. I, I, I sent out a challenge to, um, on Instagram and I said to people, just see what it is you uniquely can do to help others. Well, Olivia Newton-John, who's battling cancer, you know, she immediately posted for me she said i pick up the phone every day and talk to someone i've known for a while who i haven't spoken to in a while just to see how they're doing yeah okay brilliant. yeah brilliant uh me i you know i thought well you know i love painting um maybe i'll paint with some people who are locked up somewhere so i found out there were all these older you know uh, people in in uh, old people's homes who weren't allowed to see their family couldn't even see one another locked away in their rooms and i just thought I'll Zoom do painting lessons with them. And I had so much fun doing it. Yeah. Oh, your camera's just gone off. <laughs> no, it's because uh, my press agent's trying to talk to me, but she's oh. gone now. Oh, <laughs> so, oh, sorry. I do apologize. <laughs> I have some trouble and people text you. Yeah. So, so I've only got two more questions left okay. uh, before uh, I let you get on with your day. Um, so the first one was, how was it getting your OBE? It was absolutely phenomenal. It was incredible. Um, and I was allowed to take three people and I actually was able to bring my mom and she was there and, she, you know, tears in her eyes. And, and, and I was lucky enough that the queen actually, you know, did my ceremony. Yeah. And the other random thing that happened was that my ballet mentor uh, received an OBE on the same day at the same ceremony, Ben Stevenson, who ran um, 
he was a ma famous ballet dancer and, and he was my mentor when I was a dancer. Uh, so it, it was just meant to be. It was, um, it was unbelievable, you know, but. And where, and where do you keep it? Is, is it on display or is it safely away? Well, apparently you're not allowed to wear it unless uh, Elton John invites you to a white tie and tails a tiara <laughs> party where all the, as they call them, gongs are brought yeah. out. And uh, no, and I, I, it's in my safe. It's a bit sad, really. I, yeah. I you know, I, I'm sure I could take it out for private parties, but I'm not allowed to wear it in public anywhere unless it's a tails party. Yeah. And I haven't seen any of those recently in Malibu. Um, but, uh, but, it, you know, but, it's, but it's really nice, I suppose, because you've been in America for so long to be recognized in the UK, uh, for, for your efforts. I mean, my uncle, my uncle John got an o OBE in 2004, uh, and his was presented by the queen as well. And that's really rare, as you said, because yes. now, you know, it's either by Harry or William or, or Andrew, whoever I suppose is, is, is available. But the last question before you go is, if you could travel back in time to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Um, I would say become your own woman. I would say don't get married too soon. I would say... Um, don't beat up on yourself and don't feel like you, you, um, you know, have, have, have your own opinion. I, I was, I was always, um, trying to do what other people, what I thought other people wanted me to do rather than actually, you know, really be myself. And, uh, you know, I, but then, you know, I was, I was 18 and I, I was, you know, a very, very young 18. I was, I, I got the part of a virgin at 20 for a good reason. So, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, hindsight is, is, is 20, 20 and, and, and the world is a different world now, different things, you know, different criteria, but, um, but, but I suppose things happen for a reason. And if things hadn't have happened in the past for you, you won't be where you are now. No, so absolutely. A, and that's I'm, why I, I I always tell people, you know, I think of life as like a wave. It's like you're in a body of water. You don't know where or what is what you're born into. It, it has, it rises, it crests, you know, something amazing happens. You get a role, you fall in love, you make the team, whatever it is. And then it crashes when it ends and you go, oh no, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> uh, but if it's like a wave, it crashes, it hurts itself, but it comes right back up. And if you're open-minded and open-hearted, you connect with new water and create a new wave. That is a lovely, lovely thought. That is really is. Jane, thank you so much for your time. You have a wonderful day. All the best. Keep safe. And I look forward to seeing Ruby's Choice uh, that comes out. Uh, is it next year? That, that will be next year, probably in March. But you've got War with Grandpa and thank, uh, Friendsgiving coming out very soon. Really and they're both it. amazing. And then uh, hopefully I will be um, back in Blighty, uh, playing this wonderful English role. That is wonderful. Jane, thank you so much. Bye-bye. So well. You've been listening to Be More Super, the podcast. It was kind of a crazy, fun experience. I love the show, guys. You're awesome. Listen, my whole family loves it, man. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your super friends. My world, let me talk.